Good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you today. Dear brother in the Lord reminded me of a truth from Psalm 16. In verse 3, he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is in whom is all my delight. And I, whenever I hear that and what he encouraged me to think of is how much I love and adore this church and all of you and you are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I'm so thankful to be able to preach the word to you today. For your great benefit and joy, I would ask that you would open your Bibles to Luke 11, 1, 13. Luke 11, 1 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's few Bibles in front of you. And if you're new to navigating the Bible this morning, the books are in the top right corner. The chapters are the big numbers and the verses are the small ones. We are in the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. And if you were able this morning, I would ask that you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Luke, being carried along by the Spirit, writes these words. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, and he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for being our Father. Thank you. For the love which with you have given us, that we might be called your sons, and we are. 
Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we are taught by it today. That we will learn and understand the importance of prayer. And how that we are not only to pray, but we are to pray boldly, expectantly, and for your glory alone. Father, help us reach this end today of understanding and to know you better and to desire and love you and cherish you more in the person of your Son, by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm just going to check something real quick. Okay, I can do that. That's good. Have you ever heard someone tell you that you're going to do something do it the right way. I certainly have. Perhaps you've heard that from one of your parents or maybe your boss, and perhaps you heard it before as a warning, or maybe you heard it afterwards as a reprimanding. You should have done it the right way. Speaking from experience, if you're going to pull the weeds, you better do it the right way. Or, it's one thing to apologize to your brother. But you better do it the right way, in the right attitude. And for the Christian, it's one thing to read your Bible, but as we learned last week, it's not just checking off a box, doing it once in a while. You ought to do it the right way, choosing the good portion, valuing Christ above all things. And perhaps today, as it is most pertinent, it's one thing for us to pray, but it's a completely different thing to do it in the right way. And it's not that there's only one right way to pray, but the point is, is that we as disciples of Christ are not only supposed to pray, period, but we are to be praying for the right things and in the right manner, in the right heart, according to Scripture's instruction. And today you'll learn exactly that in continuing our short series in Luke, entitled True Discipleship, where we are learning from the teaching and life of Christ himself some of the key distinctive and characteristics of those who follow Christ, who are his disciples. We are doing so by moving on to a new part of the narrative from last time, which is uh, clear by the change in time and the change in place. It starts out in 11.1 with, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, um, removed from 10.38 to 42. And therefore, it is the same context of discipleship, which is worth mentioning today. And the main idea that we have is disciples of Jesus Christ pray Godward, and boldly expectant prayers, individually and corporately. So disciples of Jesus Christ pray Godward and boldly expectant prayers, individually and corporately. Essentially, true disciples of Christ pray. <laughs> but not only do they pray, they pray thus. And the thus, all that is involved in that thus, is what we are going to learn Today And the main idea is seen in three main points and a couple of sub-points. The prayer's content, 1 through 4, the petitioner's courage in 5 through 10, and the provider's compassion in 11 through 13. And so first, we have the prayer's content. And before we even think about the actual content of the prayer, we have something to learn from what the disciples tell Christ. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. And I can't help but notice the connection to the last section. 
Last time, if you remember, we saw through the narrative of Mary and Martha and Jesus that disciples are supposed to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to his teaching, to choose the good portion, to be devoted to Christ in all things by being in his word and learning about his person and work. And so the disciples, as a direct application of that, say, Lord, teach us first to pray. That is the first thing we want to learn from you. I'm your disciple. I need you to teach me your ways. And first of all, and primarily in prayer. I'm sitting at your feet to learn that. Lord, teach us to pray, to commune with you. The disciple's characteristic devotion to the word carries over into his characteristic devotion to prayer. Also, it's implied here that we do need to learn and be taught how to pray. That's another thing we see. Praying good, Godward, bold, expectant, scriptural prayers takes work. It does not come naturally. We must try and learn to cultivate our prayer lives according to scripture's direction. So let us have that attitude to learn humbly how to pray and cultivate our prayer lives. And the first step to Godly prayer is to look to God for how to pray. In this passage, we see that Jesus instructs the disciples on how to pray with a model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. You probably have heard it a time or two. And uh, in this prayer, we see not the only prayer you can pray. It's not like you have to say this prayer only ever, or else a lot of us are living in disobedience, which that's not true. But an example of what a Godward, boldly expectant prayer looks like. And don't get it twisted that we need to be so stringent on not saying this prayer, though. Or not taking very close, close applications from this prayer. Because there's only basically this time and the other times in the Gospels that it is mentioned that the Lord literally says, this is what you should say when you pray. And I think that we should pay attention to that. I think we should be very diligent about modeling our prayers after this one. And we are going to see first that Jesus does exactly that, teaches us how to do that by showing us his prayer and showing us from the content of it that it moves from God to us. Our prayers start with God and then move to us, and meaning it has a Godward start and a Godward supplication. So first we're going to see a Godward start. It starts with, famously, Father. Father, that's the famous God word start because it addresses him and extols him for who he is. This is something that seemingly everyone does because it's kind of the thing to do. But it's not just meaningless lingo to address God at the beginning of prayer. It means something because God is the one who we are actually praying to. We don't pray to anyone else or anything else. We pray to God as Father. We pray to Him alone. And while it may seem obvious, a Godward prayer, a prayer that is directed to and focused on and wanting to glorify God, is going to address Him. In prayer, is going to rightly and honorably and respectfully and lovingly and humbly address him at the very start. Next, I also think that there's something important about the specific use of the word father. I'm not going to say that it's prescriptive, that we all have to begin every single prayer with father or our father, 
But I'm going to at least suggest that it's extremely important that we, if we don't say it out loud, that we are actually thinking about that in our hearts. That we are coming to him with the posture of him as father and us as son. It is the unique privilege, and this is why we should do it. It is the unique privilege of Christians to approach him as such. To see him and know him as father. And so why wouldn't we want to come to him, at least in the posture of our hearts, and say, Father, this is what I petition to you. Those whom God has redeemed through covenant are his children and are thus able to call him father. And we experience the same intimate relationship that we see from the father and the son in John 17. Christ, what did he say? He didn't call him God, didn't call him Lord, didn't call him any of those things. He comes to him in the high priestly prayer before he's about to be crucified and says, Father. And that is the relationship that we have with God. You do not have to fearfully approach him with worry. He is your Father who loves you. You can approach with bold reverence and expectation that he will meet your needs our prayer should start with addressing God and knowing that he is our father. For that is Godward. And it addresses him and inherently praises him for what he's done for us in Christ. But it also is boldly expected because we remember the character of our God as our father who is good to us. Who will provide for our every need. And second, we see, hallowed be your name. And honestly, if it wasn't such an endearing phrase that we love so much, it would probably be translated more something like, let your name be honored as holy. But because all of us have recited this prayer for years and years and years, and we said, hallowed be your name, they keep hallowed in there. Um, But that's exactly what you're saying. The first words of our prayers ought to embody this. Lord, let your name first be holy, and you be glorified as such. And your name here means all who God is. It doesn't just mean like, well, we just want the name Lord to be holy. No. Lord encompasses all of God's attributes. It, it summarizes all of who he is in his name. So God, our prayer is focused on and centered on God and ascribing to him the holiness and glory due his name. We do not pray to get stuff from God. Or for God to talk about us and for us to be the center of our own lives. No, prayer is not only addressed to God, but it is about Him first. A Christian prayer is primarily focused on and directed toward exalting the Lord as holy. As the psalmist says in Psalm 29, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. When we come to God in prayer, we should be like the angels in Isaiah 6 who were flying around him, and all they could say in his presence was, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That is what our prayers should be like. Let the earth be full of your glory. The anthem of our hearts at all times, and especially in prayer, should be, Let your name, Father, be honored as holy. Let my heart, Father, be penetrated by the reality and the depth of your holiness, and let it not only penetrate my heart, but the entire world. That is the heartbeat of the Christian prayer. Do we pray like that? Are your prayers more about God and his glory, or more about yourself? Next, he says, your kingdom come. 
your kingdom come. The final portion of this Godward start is that phrase. It's a wish, just like the last phrase, let your kingdom come. Let your name be honored as holy. Let your kingdom come here on earth. This is a declaration of the great truth that a kingdom, that the kingdom of God is at hand and it has been inaugurated in the coming of Messiah and folks, it's coming back. It's coming in fullness where God will be fully revealed and righteousness and judgment and salvation will be dealt out accordingly. And our prayer here says, let that reality come soon and let it even have effect on our lives today. Let it come to bear on my life. Let it come to bear on our lives today. We pray for God's kingdom, his rule, his reign, his sovereign good reign to come under which all people must bow the knee and obey and worship him and glorify him. And it's not surprising that after we say, Lord, let your name be holy, that we would immediately assume. And let that come in fullness now. Lord, let your kingdom come now so that you might get the glory that you're due and that the wicked might not prosper any longer. After addressing God as Father and wishing for his name to be made holy, we wish for, as one commentator put it, the eradication of evil and the manifestation of righteousness that is anticipated. This is how our prayer should start. My Father, the one who has saved me, who has made me his son in his love, let your name be magnified as holy in my heart and in the whole world because that's who you are, that's what you are, and let your kingdom come to rule and bear on my life and on this whole world so the wicked will not prosper and you will be glorified. That is how our prayers ought to be. And if our prayers don't include these elements, we have too small a view of God and much too big a view of ourselves. Let us be Godward in our prayer. Let us not have a skewed view of what prayer is. That is what Christ taught us first. This is what you were to say. So that is our Godward start. And next we have our Godward supplication. The second portion of our prayer should include Godward supplication. And the recognition and the uplifting of the holy name of the Lord actually rightly orders the rest of the prayer. It rightly orders the supplication. So now, even in our supplications, the things that we ask for, they are Godward. They are directed and focused on in wanting to glorify Him. And in asking God these things... We actually implicitly recognize that God alone is the one who can provide them. That's why we're coming to him in prayer. So it glorifies him even in our supplication. Additionally, because our prayer is focused on God and his glory, our request will be hopefully less selfish. And by his grace, we will be content if he does not grant them. For we are more concerned with God's glory first and not our own, and not our own things second. So we also, knowing that God is who he is and praising him as such in prayer, are able to ask for these things boldly. So it's also in light of the first phrases of God's holiness and who he is that we can come and and, and say, Lord, I am confident to ask you for the daily needs of life. I'm confident to ask you for my deepest spiritual needs. For we see in places like Matthew 6, 31 to 32, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
And there are three supplications or requests offered up in this prayer, instructing us on what we should be asking for. First, the centrality of God's holiness brings about the three main things, physical provision, forgiveness, and spiritual protection and guidance. So notice first, before we get into those things, that each of these requests, there's a corporate aspect. Give us. Forgive us. Lead us. This is where those last two words of the main idea, individually and corporately, come into play. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we certainly have a personal relationship with him as Father. But we have been saved as disciples into a community of disciples. And we need to pray corporately with other believers, asking for these needs, asking for the things of our brothers and sisters as well. We saw a great example of that this morning, asking for comfort for the heading family. It is so very important that we do these things well. We pray for one another, that we pray with one another in the body. Let us not neglect to meet together to pray with one another. And so first, we see, give us this day our daily bread. We are asking for physical provision from the Lord. The word that Jesus uses is bread, but that doesn't obviously just mean bread. He wasn't saying, just ask for a loaf of bread. That's all you need to ask for. <laughs> Rather, this request is talking about any physical need we might have. Food, shelter, water, even health. And we ought to pray for them in bold expectation that our Father can provide for us. And notice it doesn't say, give me 3,000 days worth of bread. Give me the next year's worth of bread. Or even for the next week, it says, give me bread just for today. Lord, provide my physical needs just Today, I'm not worried about tomorrow. I'm not worried about next month, next year. Just provide my needs for today, please. This request for today's provisions seem to have the same heart as we see in Matthew 6, 34. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles. This not only shows the confidence in the Lord that he can provide all things, but also it evidences a heart is actually more satisfied in the Lord than in physical provision. In light of the Godward start, the petitioner is so infatuated with the holiness and the glory and the kingdom of God that he needs just today. He's only focused on today's needs. And actually, even if in God's sovereignty and perfect will and wisdom, he decides to not give us food and drink and shelter and health and all those things, even if we die of a lack of those things. This prayer shows that we are still yet content with the Lord magnifying his name with whatever he sovereignly chooses. For if the results of this sinful world strike us and God does not choose to deliver us, God's character has not changed. For who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can famine, can peril, can sword, can nakedness, can the lack of physical need separate us from the love of Christ? No. Nothing can. That is the importance of God-centered prayer. That we remind ourselves when we grow in these things. It orders our supplication and helps us focus on the glory of God first, even in the physical needs of life. Brothers and sisters, each day when we pray, let us not be distraught with the troubles of tomorrow and the needs of the next week. But rather, let us be focused on the exaltation of of the name of the Lord, and then confidently ask our Father to provide our physical needs for the day that lies at us.
And so next we have, forgive us, for we have forgiven others. So we move pretty radically here from physical provision to spiritual provision. The Lord certainly can and will take care of our physical needs. We understand and know that our deepest needs are spiritual. This request comes from someone who understands that deepest need. And friends, I hope that each of us have looked upon the Lord and seen His holiness and seen the coming of His kingdom with judgment and salvation. And we have decided to say, Lord, I've understood my sin and I need forgiveness. I've understood my deepest need after beholding you in glory and I need that forgiveness. Indeed, how can we wish for God's name to be exalted as holy without even recognizing our sin? If we don't recognize our own sin, how can we actually properly exalt the name of God and say, holy be your name? How can we wish for God's full revelation in the coming of his kingdom, which involves salvation and judgment, without knowing our need for that coming of salvation? Let us confess our sins to him each day, asking for forgiveness, because as 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is actually the knowledge of God's faithful and just character that is a part of the basis of this request. The ground for asking for forgiveness is the individual's knowledge that if he forgives others, he will be forgiven. As Luke 6.37 says, forgive and you will be forgiven. The individual boldly reminds God, as if he needed reminding, but he tells God, this is your promise This is your character. I have forgiven others, so please forgive me. Let us remember the Lord's character. Let us follow the command of God to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Let us remember Christ and his forgiveness of us, the once and for all forgiveness because of his work on the cross. Let us remind the Lord, Lord, I know I have sinned, but I know that you are faithful and that you have promised to forgive, that you have forgiven me in Christ. This is what we see in Exodus 32. Moses is going before the Lord, and what does he say? He doesn't say, well, the Israelites aren't that bad, you know. Gold calf, could be worse. He doesn't say that. He says, Lord, remember your character. Remember Abraham. Remember Isaac. Remember your steadfast love and your faithfulness to them in your covenant. And forgive them. That's is how we ought to be in prayer. Lord, remember, I know you do remember the promise. Hold up Jesus Christ as your only plea each day and receive the forgiveness with joy that the Lord offers. Confess and ask for the Lord's forgiveness. Then finally, the, the last request of this prayer is for the spiritual protection and guidance of the petitioner. We need desperately, desperately for the Lord to work in our lives for our redemption, for our justification. We also desperately need the Lord to work in our lives for our continued faithfulness and our sanctification. We not only see God's holiness and recognize we need forgiveness, but we see God's holiness and we recognize our need for holiness. We see His holiness and its beauty and its wonder and we say, Lord, Lead me away from temptation. Let me walk in your ways. Let me be holy as you are holy. 
This reminds me of two psalms in particular. First, the beginning of Psalm 16 in verse 1 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And secondly, famously, in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Then verse 3, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Preserve me, O God. Lead me not into temptation. Lead me out of sin. Lead me in your righteousness. Do it for your name's sake, Psalm 23 says. Do it for your glory. For your name to be exalted as holy. Do you pray that? That's what Jesus is telling you to pray. Exalt the name of God as holy and ask, Lord, make me faithful, sentence you may be glorified. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's how a disciple prays. Boldly dependent on God because you know how badly you need him. And you know his character to provide. In some, the disciple prays not only Godward to start his prayer, but Godward in his supplication. And because of the Godward start of that prayer, the disciple can then petition God in confidence, knowing his character. So that was the prayer's content. And next we have the petitioner's courage. The petitioner's courage in 5 to 10. The Lord's Prayer is often taught by itself, because there's a lot in there, but you can see that when Jesus answers the request, teach us to pray, he doesn't stop talking after the Lord's Prayer. He continues, unbroken thought. And you can almost hear the disciples, who are we to ask things of the Lord? It's like you can fill in the blank in your Bible in between the prayer and Jesus' next sentence. Isn't that awfully bold, Jesus? To ask the Father for physical provision? To ask the Father for forgiveness? To ask the Father for leading out of temptation? Who are we to ask God? Sure, we're sons of God, but this is the God of the universe we're talking about. Why should God lead us in righteousness and provide us these things? Well, and you can see that they do exhibit a certain amount of confidence. We just praise the holiness of the Lord, and all of a sudden we're saying, oh Lord, provide for my daily needs. Provide for me, please. There's a certain boldness to it. And Jesus continues to explain in the rest of the passage why we should and can actually ask boldly of God. And he does so first through a focused analogy and a foundational application. So a focused analogy first. And this is in five through eight, an illustration of sorts, a story. And there's a certain individual in this story who wants to feed a guest, his friends who came in on a journey at midnight of all times for some reason. But hey, he wants to be hospitable, I guess, you know. Um, who cares what time he prepares dinner? But he discovers he has no bread. And that is actually a really big deal back in those days. If you were not able to provide food for your guests, that was like really shameful and really bad. And so he's really shameful. He's in a really desperate time. And so he runs to his friend's house. And I assume he lives close by, like a neighbor or something. And he bangs on his door and says, I need three loaves of bread. And you notice that he, he actually is yelling inside the house because the guy doesn't get up. He says, he answers from within, still laying in his bed, oh, this guy, my friend, oh, man. I'm not going to get up. My kids, I finally got them in bed. I don't want to get up. 
I'm going to disturb my whole household now. And so he's asking for these three loaves, and the, and, and the man does not want to help him, his friend. Then in verse 8, Jesus says, I'll tell you, though he would not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And the word impudence there does not mean persistence, as in like the man was so annoying that the man, his friend, actually gave him the bread to get him out of the way. It actually carries the idea of shameless boldness. Shameless boldness. So because of his friend at the door, and because of his shameless boldness to come to him at midnight and ask him for bread, he decided to give him the bread on account of it. His friend recognized his boldness and gave him what he needed. The illustration is often botched because the reader focuses on the friend, on the one who did not want to give the friend the bread. And, it, and, we, and we, we compare that friend to God and say, oh, well, God must be, is he reluctant? Is God reluctant? And he finally relents because we're so persistent and we keep on knocking on his door, then finally God gives us the bread or whatever we need. But actually, in context... The focus is on the need of the impudent man who represents us. Jesus is trying to get the point across that we really should come with shameless boldness before God because he will supply us with what we need. We are very much like that man in a lot of ways, lacking in some physical need or spiritual need at an unexpected hour, in absolute desperate for help, and we have no business going there going to the Lord and asking for him to give us something. We are mere man. Who is man that God is mindful of us? But Christ says, be like this man and be unashamed in your confidence and boldness and go to the Lord and ask him for what you need when you pray. And the comparison of God with the friend who gives the bread can be done, but it's done in contrast, just like we'll see in verses 12 and 13. If even this reluctant man, this Lucas, what Jesus is saying, if even the reluctant man will give his friend what he needs, how much more will our gracious Lord give us what we need in light of our boldness? Not because of our boldness necessarily, but in light of it. Disciples ought to have prayers characterized by this kind of boldness because of their intimate relationship with God. And this leads to a more greater foundational application that Jesus makes in verses 9 and 10. And he says, And I'll tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So this is hard to parse out, but this is the application of the analogy. And Jesus is saying, Everything you ask for, you'll get? Well, no. It's not what he's saying. That's the prosperity gospel. That's not what we teach. So for the gospel's sake, it's necessary to say that this verse does not mean that everything you ask for, you will receive, nor does it mean that if you ask enough or that you ask in the right amount of faith, that you will receive what you ask for. What this verse does mean is that we should not expect to receive something if we didn't ask for it. 
We can even get this on a human level. How can we fully expect someone to do something for us or to get us something whenever we don't ask them for it? It's like on Christmas morning, if I didn't like the gift I got, and my mom was like, well, I bought everything off your list. Well, I, 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 I didn't put this on my list, but I wanted you to get this for me. Well, how am I supposed to expect that if I didn't ask for it? If I receive something without asking... Now, that's a surprise and blessing I did not expect. But if I did not receive something I did not ask for, I should have expected that. And so Jesus is saying, we should expect to receive from him what we ask. We should ask boldly with an expectation. I think that it's imperative in this exhortation, which has been made several times implicitly, but most explicitly by Christ here, to clarify that this comes in light of the instructed model for prayer to kind of guide us in how we understand the analogy. In other words, it exists within a context of certain ideas and things that the disciples ask for. So we don't ask for health and wealth and prosperity and expect that in return. But we ask for our needs, our physical provisions, the things that we absolutely need, and we ask for the Lord to be made holy. We ask for his kingdom to come. We ask for forgiveness and preservation. Those kinds of things, we ought to expect God to provide for us. But how about if you don't ask? What does that say about you? One who is not asking the Lord for his needs, or maybe you're asking for the Lord's needs and you're not expecting, you don't think that God will provide them, He is self-sufficient, thinking that you can provide all the things on your own, maybe. Or maybe you believe that God can't supply it for you. You don't believe that he can. Or maybe God isn't powerful enough or good enough to supply those needs for you. So if you aren't coming before God in dependence on him for your needs and expectation that he can and will provide them, which one is it? Is there self-sufficiency in your heart? That you think that you can provide all that you need? Do you not believe that God is able? Do you not believe that he is good? Friend, if that is you, repent and believe in the God who is your father and know that he can and will lovingly provide for all that he sovereignly ordains according to his perfect will. Boldly give petition before God with no shame, knowing that he answers and that he provides in his goodness. And lastly, we have the provider's compassion in 11 through 13. Provider's compassion. And once again, Christ makes a similar move as he did in the last analogy. He makes a contrasting comparison between earthly fathers and our heavenly father. He says, surely you know that even earthly fathers know how to give good gifts. And you all are evil. And if evil humans can give good gifts to their children, how much more? Can the Father, who literally defines what goodness is, give good gifts to his? We're beating the same drum over and over again, which is a good thing. God is so infinitely good, pray expectantly. God is so infinitely good, pray boldly. But it doesn't just say that God gives good gifts, does it? No, Jesus adds a dimension here. He says... How much more 
will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And that, friends, makes an entirety of difference. Makes an eternity of difference, literally. God, in His goodness, gives Himself and with Him all good gifts in and through the person of His Spirit. And actually, I would dare say that this, in this passage, is the most important verse of this entire section. And it's actually the key to the entire argument. There's an underlying assumption seen explicitly in this verse that has been assumed for the entirety of the passage. We've been saying, God is good, and so you can expectantly pray to him. But the underlying assumption is that it is a characteristic of the Heavenly Father to compassionately give in His goodness to His children, namely, in and through His Spirit. And that assumption is what drives everything else. The reason we have said pray boldly and expectantly is because God is good and He answers. But that is assuming it is a characteristic of a good God to take care of His children. And apparently, it is assuming that God gives those gifts in and through his spirit, through the agency of his spirit. And the basis of this assumption is in God's nature and is in God's character. And so first, in the triune life, we actually see the basis for what Jesus says here. Why is it to be assumed, the question is, why is it to be assumed that the Father will give his spirit? Jesus assumes that's true. I'm going to argue that in John 15, 26, we see the answer. John 15 says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Well, as Jesus says here, because by nature it is fitting that one who has eternally proceeded from the Father to be sent from the Father and the Son, then he will be. And I know it might be really hard to understand, but it's the relationship between the Father and the Spirit and eternity as one who proceeds from the Father that makes it fitting that he is sent. That's what John 15, 26 is saying. And, but here's why that matters. I know that seems really complex. You can have confidence in God's spiritual and physical care for your life because His giving of the Spirit is founded in His very eternal, unchanging, never, ever changing nature in His being. Our confidence in God is based on a never changing relationship between the two of the persons of the Trinity. The triune divine nature is our confidence. And that is good news for us because that has always existed. It is never going to change. And that is closely connected to his character. God is the very definition of goodness for his people. As Luke 12:32 says, "Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. If God delights in giving you the eternal kingdom of God in the person of the Son, then how much more will he simply delight in giving you your physical needs?" As Romans 8:32 says, "He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. That is good news for us, friends. Our confidence is based in the never-changing nature of God, namely the triune relationship between the Father and the Spirit. 
but also in his never-changing character of a God who delights in caring for his children, spiritually first and physically second. That is why we have confidence in prayer. That is why Jesus is teaching us to be confident in prayer. That is who we are praying to. We are praying to a God who is never changing, who is always good. And verse 13 is not only important in showing this underlying assumption that explains the message of Godward in boldly expecting prayer, but also in context, Jesus says, the Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask because he was inherently asked for in the Lord's Prayer. So what he's saying is that each and every petition in the Lord's Prayer is provided in and through the Spirit. As we see in Acts several times, Acts 2.38, 8.20, and 10.45, the Holy Spirit is the gift of God through whom all other gifts flow. So I'm going to, teach, I'm going to show you what I mean here. In each and every phrase of the Lord's Prayer, we see that the Spirit is key in providing it. First we say, teach us to pray. And in John 16, 13 we see, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will teach you the things concerning Me. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, the Spirit intercedes for us when we cannot make words in our prayer. So the very first step of our process, which is asking Christ to teach us how to pray, is accomplished in and through the Spirit. We grow and cultivate our lives in and by the Spirit. So thank God that He gives us the Spirit. Because we would never be able to pray Godward expecting prayers and learn how to pray that way unless He did so. And next, we see that adoption is a triune act appropriated to the Spirit. The Spirit is very active in our adoption as sons. And so that's why we're able to say, Father, hallowed be your name. Because as 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And Galatians 4, 6 adds to that, saying, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Our sonship, which allows us to even call God Father and to receive his fatherly care, was accomplished through the work of adoption, a work done through our union with Christ in and by the Spirit. This ties in with Godward, um, our Godward beginning of prayer as well. So what are the two phrases that the Spirit invokes in our hearts and makes our hearts say? We just read, Abba, Father, and Jesus is Lord. And in John 4.24, we see we're supposed to worship him in spirit and in truth. So the God-centered, God-loving, God-honoring, God-worshipping, holiness-focused, how-would-be-your-name desire for God to be holy is accomplished only in and by God's abiding spirit that he gives us. The only way for our prayer to be Godward is if God gives us his spirit. And we see the same thing as we move down through the prayer. The Spirit applies the forgiveness of our sins. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And finally, He leads us out of temptation and into all truth and sanctification. Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The big idea I'm trying to get across to you is 
is that Jesus is saying, the Father is good enough to give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And that Holy Spirit enables you to pray in the way that I've commanded you to pray. And that is good news, friends, that we are able to pray and to do this thing that disciples are supposed to do because of God enabling us by His Spirit. Thank God for that. We ought not to be ashamed to come boldly and to ask the Lord for the Holy Spirit in order to fill these needs because the Father is in His nature compassionate and good and He will freely give us His Spirit and provide for your needs. So when we pray, when we go to the Lord in prayer, do we consider all these things? Do we consciously consider these things? Do we come before God in prayer as if all these things we've talked about today are indeed true? When Pastor, Matt, when Pastor Zach or Mike, I must mix them up there, stood up here today and prayed, and we prayed together as a congregation, were you thinking of those things? Were you boldly expecting the Lord to provide the things that you're praying for together? When you pray, is it more about you or is it more about God? Do your needs and concerns order how you praise God? Or does your praise of God order how you ask for your needs and your concerns? When you pray, are you confident in the Lord's character and nature? Or are you doubtful that he's even able to do the things he has promised you to do? Brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus Christ, pray. So pray without ceasing. But if you're going to pray, and you're going to, I hope, I trust, then do it in the right manner and in the right way. Call out to your Father. Petition for His name to be holy in all the earth in your heart. Petition for Him to be glorified above all things and to receive the holiness and the glory which He is due. Ask for the kingdom to come. Be bold, expectant, confident that he will provide for your daily physical needs as you are content and satisfied in him. And you will continue to be content and satisfied even if he doesn't. Ask for the forgiveness of sins and for him to preserve you in faithfulness. Pray boldly, knowing he is willing to give. Pray expectantly, knowing he is a good and compassionate Heavenly Father. And pray each day personally and come here and pray with brothers and sisters corporately to our Heavenly Father. It is not just that we pray, friends. It is that we pray thus. This is the word of God from Luke 11, 1-13, which I now commit to your further study and faithful obedience until Christ returns. So let's pray together. Father, let your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we ourselves have given all who are indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. 
In Jesus' name, amen.